If you have your Bible, uh, please go to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to put the scripture on the screen. Hebrews chapter 5, starting in verse 11. It says this. We have much to say about this, but it is hard to make it clear to you because you no longer try to understand. In fact, though by this time you ought to be teachers, talking to, to, the, to the Christians, you uh, need someone to teach you the elementary truths of God, God's word over, uh, all over again. You need milk. Not solid food. Anyone who lives on milk, being still an infant, is not acquainted with the teaching about righteousness. But solid food is for the mature, uh, who by constant use have trained themselves to distinguish good from evil. So this message I'm preaching on today is actually a standalone message. It's not a part of a series. I'm going to talk about one thing today, and the thing that I'm going to talk about today is Christian maturity. I'm going to talk about Christian maturity. Now, there's several aspects of Christian maturity, and I'm going to zero in on a specific one today. Some of you guys know I grew up as a missionary, a missionary kid, and so I'm very familiar with two cultures, with the Chilean culture, which is where I grew up, and with the American culture. I've spent several years in Chile, and I've spent several years uh, in the United States. And so I know a lot about these two cultures, and there's things that I love about the American culture, and there's things that I don't like about the American culture, and there's things that I love about the Chilean culture, and there's things that I don't like that much about the Chilean culture. Some of the things I love about the American culture is that people keep their distance, generally. Like, they're not like in your business, right? Generally, there's always exceptions, but as as a generality, they're going to... uh, stay a little bit distant from you, which is great, but the problem with that is it is much harder to make friends. Now, the Chilean culture, they might be in your business. Like, they'll say, like, in the the United States, they'll say, hey, that's a nice car, congratulations for the car that you bought, but in Chile, they'll say, hey, that's a nice car, how much did it cost? (laughs) So it's a little bit in your business, but the the thing about the the, the Chilean culture that that is very beautiful is the fact that it is much easier to make friends. In fact, your friends easily become your family. And so one of the reasons why I share that is because the, the, the whole idea of my understanding of these two cultures brought me to this concept that I've shared with you before, the three types of relationships, right? We've talked about the three types of relationships. We, there's three types of relationships as far as I can tell. Number one is the relationship, the front door relationship. So picture a house. There's the front door relationship. So it's the relationship you have with a mailman. It's not really a relationship, hi, bye, and that's it, right? But then there's the living room relationship, where it's a little bit more intimate. You know, you might have coffee together and have a little chit-chat, right? But then there's the the third type of relationship, which is the kitchen relationship. I kid you not, I have friends in Chile that will walk into my house, they'll open the fridge, make themselves a sandwich, and then say hi to me. (laughs) But these same friends are the friends that have been with us through everything. They've been with us through deaths in the family. They've been with us through the birth of our children. They've been with us in our best moments, and they've been with us in our darkest moments. And so the reason why I share that is because I see a parallel between that concept and the concept of church. You see, with church, it's kind of the same thing. You can have a front door relationship with church, which I would call the CEO people, which is Christmas and Easter only people. It's kind of a distant relationship. It's not, it's not intimate. 
And then there's the living room relationship, which I would say is probably more like this space here. You know, you come to church every Sunday, but we're not involved, we're not intimate, we're not like really, uh, there's, there's an extra step that you could take. But then there's the third one, which is the kitchen relationship, which is, let's say if, um, <clears throat> if the church was a restaurant, most of you walk into the, into the quote-unquote restaurant, and all the entrees have been prepared, it's all ready to go, the table's been set, and then you show up, and it's great. And another more intimate, which has to do with the kitchen, where you prepare everything, right? And so there's, there's a group of us in this church that is, uh, let's say, in charge of all the preparations of all the things that you see on Sundays. And so the reason why I share that is because I believe that there are many of you here today that have been coming to church on Sundays. You come to church on Sundays, and that's fine. And if that's all you want to do for the rest of your life, I'm not guilting you into doing anything else. But here's what I think is true about you. I think that there are many of you here who would love to be a part of not just being served, but to serve in the church. You want to get involved. You want to learn. You want to teach. You want to get others involved. You want to take the next step. And so this is what it means to, to be a mature Christian. It means that you're not just here to receive, but you're also here to give. And so it's what I want to talk a little bit about today. In fact, at the end of this message, I'm going to make an invitation to you to take that next step. So let me, let me set it up like this. Um, is there something that you're looking forward to? Like in your life, like you think about the next five years, you think about the next 10 years. Are there things that you're looking forward to? Just shout them out. What, what things are you looking forward to? Retirement. <laughs> yeah. What else? What else? What's that? A house? Yeah. Um, I would like to write a book. I'm writing a book. I, I would like to have it finished in the next year or so. Um, I would love to go to Europe one day. You know, there are things that you think about in your life that you would like to see happen into the future. And these things are good things because you wake up in the morning and you're like, you're looking at the future and the future seems promising, right? Um, but the good thing is about us as Christians is even when the future doesn't seem promising, we, we, know, we know that there is a future waiting for us that's better than we could ever project for ourselves in this life. And it's the hope of eternity. Last week, um, Vicki Rusick passed away. Many of us already, already know this. She passed away last Monday at uh, 3.38 a.m. And she had a, a decade of physical challenges, just over and over again, different things that she went through. And I was, uh, I was sharing with, with Ron here earlier, I was telling him that, that Vicky was a person that she literally personified James chapter 1, verse 2, which is, consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. She literally lived that. She went through so much hardship, yet she was always joyful. I don't know how much she had excitement about her future on this earth. But what I do know is that she was looking forward to eternity with Jesus. And that's what we all have to look forward to as well. 
So you may look at the future and you may think, hey, it doesn't look very good or you're a little bit depressed or you don't know. But as Christians, we have a future that surpasses all of the things that we could ever ask or imagine. And that's what we have to look forward to. Today, Vicky has no more pain. She has no more physical pain. She is literally living Revelation 21. And so the reason why I share that is, is because what can happen individually for us as we look into the future can also happen to us collectively as a church, church-wide. Like there's times that we may look at the, at the future and we, we may look at the future and it may not look good as a church. Like, like if you look at the church uh, in America right now, it's really hard right now. I mean, according to the latest Gallup um, survey, uh, 3,700 3, churches are closing every year. We have about 384,000 churches in America, and in the next uh, few years, according to governing.com, 100,000 may be closed in the next couple of years. More churches are closing than are being planted. Tens of thousands of churches are barely holding on. The future doesn't look good for the church in America. Most churches are in debt, most churches are barely paying their bills. Uh, most baptisms, well, most, sorry, most, most churches on Sundays have zero baptisms in a whole year. People are leaving uh, the church. And so the question, when I look at all these statistics and I think about our church, I'm thinking, what makes DFCC different? Like, what is it about our church that has allowed for us to, to sustain over 153 years. Some of you guys didn't even know that. 153 years we've been around. How are we still seeing new people come to this church every single Sunday? How is it that we have baptized 63 people since 2022? Since 2020? And before I answer the question, I have to make a confession. I thought that when I was hired for this job, my job was to revitalize this church. That was a very arrogant thought. Like, I, I thought about this church, and I'm like, yes, it's a 150-year-old church. I need to come into this space and bring it back to life. The reality is, no. This church has been around for so long. My, my thing, in my mind, I'm like, how do I tap in to the thing that has allowed for this church to, to stand the test of time? And that's what I want to talk to you about, about today. Because, because we're probably the oldest church of our denomination in all of California and probably even, possibly even in all of the United States. This church was founded four years before the Lincoln assassination. Like, try to wrap your mind around that. We've been around for so long. Um... And so the question that I had to ask myself is that what is it that makes this church have the ability to be able to stand the test of time? If you look out uh, this, this, uh, over on the other side of this wall, you're going to see a bunch of pictures of different pastors, and then you're going to see a plaque on the bottom with all the pastors that have come through this church. These pastors and, the, and their teams, of course, have gotten the church through the Great, Depe Great Depression, through smallpox through the Vietnam War, through the Cold War, through 9-11, through Pearl Harbor, through the JFK assassination, through the recession of 2007, through COVID. Um, they all had reasons to lose hope and to think, you know what, there's not a better future here, but there is something that allowed for them to keep going. There was something. What was it? 
Well, one part was good old-fashioned faith. Faith. Hebrews 11.1. 1. Now faith is confidence in what we hope for and assurance of what we do not see. These guys had, had assurance and they had confidence of something that wasn't even true in their present period of time, but they knew somehow in their heart God put it there that, that somehow the church was going to stand the test of time. Look, I, I believe this with all of my heart, with all of my heart. I, I believe that, that this church is going to necessitate a third service because this space isn't going to be big enough. I truly believe that. Like, I, I have no proof. I cannot tell you why I know this, but I just, I have no doubt that God is going to allow for this to happen, that all of our spaces are going to be maxed out. I believe truly with all of my heart that what's going to happen every Sunday isn't that we just have new people, which we're so glad that you're here. It's not just going to be new people raising their hands, but it's going to be every Sunday, that baptistry, there's going to be someone in there giving their life to Christ. Don't ask me how I know this, but I know it. I have faith and I have assurance that this is going to happen in this church. Praise God. Like, I wish I could just not know that, but I do. I just know it, okay? And the thing about that is that the conviction and the assurance, I believe, is the same thing that these pastors had before me, and it allowed for this church to stand the test of time. So faith was one part of it. But the other part was this, that this church always had people that would step from the living room area into the kitchen and would be part of what was happening here in the church. They were not people that were just attending on Sundays, but they were people that were getting involved. And that's what this message is all about. It's about maturity and what it means to be a mature Christian. I was talking to a, one, of my, one of my staff uh, people. I'm not going to call him out, but he's sitting in the front row with a hat on. And we were having coffee together. And he's like, he was very respectful and nice about it. But he's like, you basically preached the same message 52 times last, th in this year. And, and it's right. And, he's, and it's right. And that was intentional. Because the, 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 if, you, if you walked away with one thing throughout this whole year is what? I'm not going to call you out, but it's, it is finished. Christ did it all. We can't compensate for what God did for us. We are recipients of his grace. We are recipients of his forgiveness. We are recipients of his salvation, not as a result of what we've done, but as a result of what Christ has done for us. I hope I've made myself clear this year. <laughs> so those laughs make it, make it, uh, make it right. You were, you were right on it. And so, and so but, but we have to understand something. What happens, like, like the question is this, what do we do now that we don't have to do anything, right? What do we do now that we don't have to do anything? The answer to that, to that question is the exact same thing that happens when a baby is born. When a baby is born, what happens? That baby, a healthy baby, needs to grow. And that's what the verse at the beginning was talking about. There's this whole process of this new birth, and then there's a process of growth that needs to take place. And what the author of Hebrews was talking about is that there's also a parallel between physical growth and spiritual growth. When a baby is born, first 
part of the baby's life is it's dependent on the body of, of the mom, right? Next step into the future, you see this kid feeding himself or herself. And then next step after that, you see them probably doing what the mother did for them with their own children. The same thing is true in church. You know, there's a first step. Like if you're a new Christian, of course, you need to feed from the body of Christ. You need it. You're dependent on the body. But then there comes a time when you need to learn how to feed yourself. And then after, afterwards, you need to be feeding others. That's why the writer of Hebrews says, some of you should be teachers by now. He's saying, some of you, you've been here for a while. You shouldn't be just sitting in the pews or in the chairs. You should be taking your next step. You see, because for a baby, imagine a baby, imagine a 10-year-old drinking from the breast of the mom. That would be weird, right? However, it's possible that you'll come to church for 10 years and you're still feeding directly from the body. And so I think that there's a few of you here this morning, or perhaps a lot of you here, who are ready to take the next step and ready to get involved. That's what this message is all about. And there's, there's a lot of uh, different aspects of Christian maturity. There's a lot of different aspects that have to do with Christian maturity. And I'm going to talk about a lot of those aspects starting January 1st of next year. We're going to do a whole series on, on, on vision, and we're going to talk about that. But I'm going to talk about one specific one in the few minutes that I have left that is a very important one. And it's one that I've probably never talked about before. It's about tithing. Aren't you glad you came today? So we're going to talk about this, and because the reason why I'm talking about this is if the Bible talks about this, I need to talk about it too. I can't not give to you the full counsel of the Word of God. What's a tithe? Maybe you don't know what a tithe is. A tithe is 10% of your income. It was, it was in, the, in the Mosaic Law in the Old Testament, and it was confirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 and continued through the early church into our present period of time. Some of you guys get uncomfortable with this, and I get it. But this is, this is an important aspect of our Christian maturity. You may, you may say, well, pastor, you know what? Tithing isn't for the New Testament. It isn't for now. It is from the, from the Old Testament. It's part of the Mosaic Law. And I've, I've read a scripture that says that Jesus came to abolish the law. How many of you guys have heard that scripture? Jesus came to abolish the law, right? Okay. I'm going to do a whole sermon series on things Jesus never said. That's going to be one of them, okay? He never said that. Matthew 5, said, it was kind of a trick because it's really similar, but it's actually the opposite. It says, Matthew 5, 17, it says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does this even mean? What it means is that you no longer tithe to save yourself. You no longer tithe to earn points with God. And so that's, that's the whole point. Then, you know, if we're not supposed to tithe anymore, then, you know, why should we not lie? Why should we not steal? Why should we not commit adultery? Jesus came to fulfill the law, which means that these things are no longer a matter of salvation, but he did not come to abolish it, which is a really important distinction. These aren't matters of salvation or, or gaining points with God. These are matters of living in a way that honors God and gives us purpose, orientation, and blessings as well. But here's the thing. 
even though many of you understand that the tithe is a baseline in the Mosaic law and that it was continued through the New Testament and confirmed by Jesus in Matthew chapter 23 um, into the early church and to our present period of time, it is safe to say, and with this, I don't want to guilt anyone. I promise this is not about guilting you into doing something that God is not putting in your heart to do. But it is safe to say that about 50% of you in this church currently right now are not tithing to God. Maybe you're here this morning and you just didn't know. And you're like, oh, we're supposed to tithe? Okay, the Bible says it. And maybe that's at the end of this message, you'll just start tithing. That's possible. Maybe you just didn't know. Well, now you do. Now you do. And now you understand it. But I really feel like God spoke to me this week that, that many, for many of you, your next step of becoming a mature Christian is that you start tithing to God, that you've been holding back this part of your heart. Malachi uh, chapter 3 says, this is, this is a prophet talking to Israel, and he, say, he has some very strong words. He's prophesying to Israel that they were robbing God for holding back on what's God. Malachi chapter 3, I'm going to read it here, starting in verse 8, says, Will a mere mortal rob God? Yet you rob me. But you ask, how are you robbing me? In tithes and offerings. You are under a curse, your whole nation, because you are, under, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that there will not be room enough to store it. And so, just to be clear, God is not threatening Israel that he will punish them if they don't. He's not saying that. What he is saying is that he will bless Israel if they do. It's an important distinction. So you may ask yourself, well, how does this apply to us? This is back in the Old Testament, and that's a fair question. None of you are going to be struck dead if you don't. None of you are going to lose your salvation if you don't. None of you are going to lose points with God if you don't. I want to make that clear. You need to understand that. So we need to understand how does this apply to us. And for us to understand how this applies to us, we have to look at the New Testament and how Paul was talking about the concept of giving. 2 Corinthians 9 uh, seven says this. It says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. This is what Paul is saying. He's saying it to his church, and he's saying it to us. If you're feeling reluctant or hesitant, you shouldn't do it. If you're feeling compulsion or you're feeling manipulated to do it, you shouldn't do it. If the church is saying that they need you to give, like they need your money, you shouldn't give it. Those are not good reasons to give. The Apostle Paul is saying that the only legitimate way to give is from a cheerful heart. It's a heart of gratitude. It's a heart of understanding that everything you've received from God, so giving it back to God, there's no fear because you know you're giving it to the source and everything that you have, you have received from Him. That's the only way to give. That's the only legitimate way to give, open-handedly and gratefully. This is not something God wants from you. This is something that God wants for you. You see, holding back from God what is His 
is actually a, a holding back from God what is his is actually a heart issue disguised as a financial issue. Matthew 6, 21 says this, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Here's how it works. Let's just say you got your, your tithe in your hand and you're gripping it like that. Like, I don't know, man. I don't know. This is like, it's hard. I mean, it's 10% of all my income. That's, that's right there. And God's saying, this is mine. Like you're holding on to something that is actually mine. And, and you're like, I don't know about this. I don't know about this. I don't know about this. And then you're convicted in your heart. But here's the problem. Here's, here's the crazy part of it is that you think that the reason why God hasn't taken that from you is because you have such a hard grip on it. That's because your God is probably about that big because he could take that whenever he wants. But the moment you decide to open up your hand and you're like, oh man, okay, yeah, okay, fine. Here it is. What you gave God was not 10% of your income. That was always his. He could have taken it at will. What you gave to him was the part of your heart that you were holding back. That's all it is. And it's always been that. It's not about the amount. It's about the heart. It's not about money. It's about the heart. It's always been the heart. This is the only scripture, the Malachi one, in which in which the prophet is talking in behalf of God to Israel and saying, test me on this. It's the only scripture, I think, at least as far as I know, where, where God says, test me. Test me on this. See if I don't open the floodgates of heaven. Here's something I've never heard. Pastor, my life is going downhill. My finances are in shambles. My marriage is falling apart. I feel so far from God. And you're like, what happened? I started tithing. And then my whole life fell apart. You've never heard it. The reason why you laugh is because you know, you know that when you start tithing, it's not that God made you a millionaire as a result of tithing, but your heart in a way started aligning with God and you started seeing your life flowing the right way. Ask people around who've, who have been tithers for such a long time, they will tell you it is more blessed to give than to receive. That is actually true. 100%. So I'm going to end with this. This is probably the phrase that I would sum up the whole message on. 39 seconds left. No pressure. We had a little counter there. It's okay. We can go a little over. Um, listen to this. You, listen, you can't have a life that is fully surrendered to God if you have not surrendered, surrendered to him your finances as well. Um, this message is not about money. It's a message about your heart. This is not our church asking you for money. Just so you know, this is not me saying, hey, we need to pay our bills, so please give us a little more because we're running a, a little low. That's not what this message is about. We've been here for 153 years. We know who our provider is, okay? So this is not what this message is about. I want you to focus this morning on your next step, what your next step is. Is And I want to encourage you to take it today. I know what mine is. My wife and I, we talked about it this morning. We know what our next step is, and we're going to take it. We're going to take it this month. Um, for some of you here, you have never given anything. And I'm not saying, oh, shame on you. No, you just haven't. You've never given anything to the church. I want to challenge you to start giving regularly. And the reason why, why I say regularly uh, is because sometimes we just tip God. 
Like, we're like, ah, uh, okay, how much, how much should we give? Like, how much do I have here? Yeah, that's, that's, that's pretty good. Okay, the verse in 2 Corinthians 9, 7 says, each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give. So I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to think about what you're going to give. I don't want you to improvise. I want you to, to talk to your spouse about it, think about it, pray about it, and then come prepared to give what you have decided in your heart to give. I want to encourage you to make it a recurring gift as well. You can go to the, the Downey First Christian Church, uh, downeyfirst.org website into the giving. You can go and make that a recurring gift, which is what our, my wife and I do. So that's some of you that have never given anything. For others, you give regularly, but you don't tithe. I want to encourage you to start tithing, to make that decision today. Talk to your spouse, think about it, pray about it, and start tithing. For others, you are a tither, and you've been tithing, and you, and you know you've experienced the tithe. I want to invite you to take your next step, which is to give above and beyond. So I want to talk to you as I close about an opportunity for those who are already tithing, or actually for everybody, but it's an opportunity for, for, for us to be able to give above and beyond. And I want to wrap up with, with this final invitation. So I drive a 1970 uh, Volkswagen Beetle. The picture of it right there, that's my car, okay? Um, and then there's the next picture, which that's me getting rear-ended a few months ago. I was not happy about it. I worked on that car for a long time. It was not pretty. And it cost me hundreds of dollars to get it fixed. Fortunately, Dave Ramsey, anybody? We had our emergency fund, and so we were able to get, get you know, money from there, be able to pay it, so we're, we're uh, okay. But the same thing that happens in a family, where you probably have an emergency fund, and something happens over here, you got to take money out of there, and then you got to replenish that. The same is true for us as a church collectively. Last year, we had something that we weren't expecting, which was uh, the AC, some of the AC of the church. This year, we had something kind of unexpected, but it's, we had a 30-year-old uh, roof, and we finally were able to change it, okay? Fortunately, we had an emergency fund that we were able to take from it, but it cost us about $40,000 to change the roof. And so um, our special offering for this year, we do a special offering every Christmas. We've been doing this for a few years. We're going to receive a special offering uh, on Sunday, December 18th. And so there's a, um, there's a Christmas offering QR code there. You're also going to get something uh, in the mail. And this money that's above and beyond uh, is going to go uh, to be able to help pay for uh, the roof that we, just, uh, that we just changed, Okay. And so a lot of challenges, a lot of things. Uh, this is not something that I'm accustomed to talk, talk about, but this is very, very important. But to conclude, uh, I don't want you to walk away with this whole idea of churches need money, we've got to give them some money. That's not what this message is about, and I don't think that that's the way that you have received it. But I don't want you to walk away thinking we've got to pay for the roof, we should give some money. This is not what this is. I want, I want you to think about all the people that have come before this generation and how all these people have been able to move this church forward. You see, what brings me the greatest joy is a lot of things. But one of the things that brings me the greatest joy is preaching, counseling, vision casting, leadership, that kind of stuff. But the thing that brings me the, the greatest, greatest joy is when I see Shay leading young adults. It's when I see Cece leading our children's ministry. 
is when I see Tony leading worship. Those things, in my mind, when I think about the future of our church, those things give me excited. You see, we need to be like John the Baptist. John the Baptist was the one that was preparing the way for what is to come. This is really what you're giving to. If you're wondering what it is, it's so that we can be able to continue this trend of being able to stand the test of time in our church. And it's been people like you that have sustained this church for such a long time. And so... Let's do this. Let's do this together. Let's go from the living room, living room to the kitchen. And it's not just finances. We're going to talk about a lot of other aspects in which I'm going to be challenging you uh, to take your step, but we'll do this one, this one for now. All right? Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for your love. We thank you for your blessings. We thank you because you're such a good God and you never leave us, never forsake us. We thank you because you are Jireh. You are the God who is our provider. And we know, God, that you have always provided for us, that everything that we have, we've received from you, and we are so grateful, so grateful, Lord. I want to pray for those here this morning who simply cannot even consider giving. I want to pray, God, that you will provide for all of their needs. I, I pray, God, that everyone who's here will not walk away feeling guilty, feeling pressured, feeling awkward, I pray, God, that you will speak into everyone's heart this morning to do what you're asking them to do. So we thank you, God, for this message, and we thank you, Lord, for this beautiful church. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. 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 amen.